Hello, Chris. What's up, Jason? It's been a while. It's been a while. How uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Uh, I spent a week kind of away from home last week, so it feels just like you know I'm way behind on pretty much everything. So I'm glad to be glad to be back. How about you? I'm good. I I think last time we talked, I just injured my foot. Uh, it has not gotten any better. Uh, really? I've been, yeah, I've been to the doctor, two more doctor's appointments, an ER visit, and finally just got some relief. So, Wow, that's uh, quite a long time to be uh, in pain there or whatever. Yeah, it's, uh, it's put me on the couch to work. Like today, I think today might be my first day back in the office, like my office at the house. And I feel like like a normal human being again. So it's been all right. I mean, is what it is. The lesson I learned is that working out will hurt me. So (laughs) that's awful, man. So hopefully it starts getting better. I thought for sure it'd be good by now. You'd think, right. But no, it's, it's good. It's, I mean, other, other than like forcing me to like sit on the couch, it hasn't like gotten the way too much. I've still been able to work and, uh, yeah. I get out here here and there. I just have to crutch around. Don't work out your fingers just in case. Dude, I was getting in bed last night and uh, I like tripped and I went to catch myself with my left arm and like pulled something in my wrist. So I was just like this morning, I was talking to Shannon. And I was like, I just, I, I give up. Like, Oh no. But it's your money makers, man. You got to be careful. That and these gorgeous eyes of mine. <laughs> well, today we are joined by Daniel Pritchett. Uh, Daniel is somewhat of a uh, important figure in my life. Daniel was one of the first mentors I had when I got into Ruby and really into web application development. Uh, so Daniel is uh, was in Memphis at the time I met, and now Daniel is Florida. Daniel is in Florida. Uh, do you mind saying hi real quick for us? Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So we'll just kind of uh, – I'll kind of give you a little more context on Daniel. So Daniel and I first met at the inaugural Memphis Ruby user group, oh, which man. was 2015, 14. It's been at least four years. I don't know. I'd have to look it up, but it's been a while for sure. So yeah, in 2014, you you started the group, right? Yeah, I was working at a a rail shop in downtown Memphis called Coroutine, and uh, we were looking at ways to build and engage a local community of developers, and talking about Ruby seemed like the way to do it. Yeah, my first time attending, I was still such a Ruby newbie. Uh, and I didn't know it was the first one. And there was a really good turnout for the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, much better than our last ever Memphis Ruby user group meeting. Uh, yeah, it but, turns out that you got to really hit the pavement and make a lot of uh, noise to keep to get people interested. And then there's the whole problem of figuring out how to make a language-specific group stay interesting year after year for maybe the same people. Yeah, that, yeah. that was a struggle. We have kind of the same problem in St. Louis. We've had a, a Ruby meetup that we started uh, 
Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it, it was kind of interesting. Like, you know, we started getting involved because our company was trying to do the same thing and hire more developers and stuff, but it just kind of swayed in and out and it kind of fell apart for a while. And I think it's being revived a bit more. And luckily we have uh, Square, uh, the co-founders of Square, uh, Jack Dorsey and Jim McKelvey are from St. Louis. So they're making a big push to hire a bunch of, you know, Ruby developers here um, again. And they tried it before, but it didn't really work. So it's going to be interesting to see if maybe maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. They're definitely hard to do those, you know, language specific meetups on something smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I always get jealous about the big ones in places like Manhattan or San Francisco where they've got a hundred people for pretty much any meetup. But then yeah, just going through a few years, like the reason that I wanted a Ruby meetup was less relevant to me even three, four years later. Like the thing that I needed to get out of it was not something that I needed to learn so much. Like I knew a lot more about Ruby, I had more contacts, so Either I have to change or the group does, and it's kind of hard to do both, you know? It's really hard, too, because Memphis is a city that is primarily driven by enterprise type software and languages. And there's really only one or two shops now left in Memphis that actually still use Ruby on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much how St. Louis is, too. It was kind of... Just, I mean, it's still used a bit in the startup space, but yeah, most everything here is Java or C Sharp or something like that. So or there's a lot more JavaScript um, going on now compared to Ruby or Python or whatever. Because when I, I moved here in 2011 and like there wasn't even a Python meetup at all. So it was kind of surprising because that was what I was originally doing before Ruby. So I kind of looked into that but uh, yeah i was like wow these are kind of tough and like you said daniel like you when you're first going to these meetups or hosting your own you have certain things you're you're wanting to get out of them but over time that changes and then you know the same thing applies to all of the people attending so if you're not able to you know continue evolving it so it still fulfills what people are looking for it just kind of slowly falls apart over time yeah. Uh, it's kind of a weird uh, tangent, but I spent some time in a Toastmasters meetup group in Memphis, man, 10, 15 years ago. And when I started, I just wanted to learn public speaking so I could present things and not embarrass myself. But uh, they had an entire separate component of leadership, which was, I don't remember what I thought it was going to be, but it turned out that a whole lot of it was built around recruiting. Like you'd have to go find people and get the numbers to get more people in the door to keep the, to come to the meetup. And that seemed silly and kind of a distraction at the time, but I realized eventually that every kind of meetup or club has the same need. Like every year you're going to lose a certain percentage of your people. So if you don't offset that with new people, then you're going to be dead in five years, right? And that's something that any kind of meetup community could learn from them. Yeah, that's interesting too, because like Chris just mentioned, when you got to St. Louis, like there wasn't a Python meetup. Uh, like Java's, I mentioned Java's a primary language here, and like our Java group just kind of went away, like our Ruby group did. So I guess it's not only like, I mean, I, I guess necessarily Meetup doesn't define what's driving like the primary language in your city. Right. It's a lot of what do people get out of it and what kind of value does it add to their lives? 
I used yeah. to like to think of Ruby as a, a language of choice, like people are doing Ruby because they want to versus .NET or Java, possibly more likely I do this because I know that's where the jobs are in my town. So the odds of someone getting out of the house and going to find an enthusiast group are a little bit lower there. Yeah, we also had like um, a bit of St. Louis is kind of widespread. So we also had like this little issue of people wanted to have it downtown. Um, but then there were also people from the county who definitely didn't want to drive 45 minutes to go to a meetup for an hour, you know, at night after work. Um, and I know that was kind of a point of contention for quite a while that, you know, some people did want to attend, but that was just no way they were going to be able to do that and oh, yeah. still see their kids and stuff at night after work. And so, yeah, it's definitely tough. And I was going to ask Jason too, if like he sees this in, in organizing conferences, like I imagine that's sort of a similar thing where you have to continue, you know, promoting your conference and keeping attendance up every year. Cause I imagine that's not going to be a consistent, um, just like, you know, meetups. Yeah, it, it's tough. Like when I first naively went into, uh, doing conferences, I thought like the first year will be the hardest and like the subsequent years, like it'll have air quotes, like a brand and it'll grow. But every year, like without fail, around June, I'm like looking at tickets, like, are we going to make it? And then, uh, so like this year, Ernie was like, where were you at last year? And I looked and we had sold the same number of tickets. And I was like, (laughs) okay. Uh, but yeah, like if you're not constantly like talking about it or like trying to keep some life in it, it's, I, when it comes to, I feel like communities, it's, uh, it's hard to keep that sustainable. Yeah. And Chris, what you were saying about uh, people not being willing to go to a meetup after work hours or across town, that's really the story of why I quit Toastmasters. When I did it for, I don't know, like six months, it was in my building and we met during lunch on weekdays. Then I switched buildings or jobs or something. And then my next best bet was seven o'clock on a weeknight and I had a kid. I don't think I ever even went to that one. I just quit. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty convenient if it's in your building. (laughs) And I have heard of companies, like big Java shops that might have something like a meetup in-house. And I can certainly see that being appealing. I would go if they had it in a place where I had to work, you know? Yeah. It is, the convenience factor is pretty huge because, you know, between doing your job and living your life, like you have to squeeze this in. And it definitely makes a sense as people's lives change, just the natural turn of things. Have you guys so ever been to... No, go ahead. Have you guys ever been to a, a weekday conference in a big city? I think last year I went to one of those for the first time. My company put on the first uh, chaos conference in uh, San Francisco. And it was like, I don't know, Thursday or Friday or something. And a lot of the attendees lived in San Francisco. So they were like, oh, I drove here from work. and I'm going to stay for a while and then go home or go back to work. And it's like, that was a foreign experience for me. It's usually like driving to another state or another town and spending the weekend and it's not the same thing at all. Yeah, I uh, we have the Strange Loop conference in town in St. Louis, and you know, not having to buy a hotel or travel or anything like it's so convenient to go to that. And I really, I really enjoyed it just that much more because I didn't have to worry about you know driving or flying or you know a hotel or any of that. It was 
way cheaper number one but like i could just like go down there from like a few minutes after i wake up you know that was like just really nice yeah we i think that's why a lot of our southeast ruby attendees are from like that nashville area Mm -hmm. i think it i don't have the exact numbers but i feel like it's some it's it's just from 40 to 60 percent of the people at southeast ruby are from that area um, Jason, I was going to ask you, you have this year the change in kind of schedule where you have now one day of workshops and then a, the second day of the conference is talks. Is that one that's you're kind of trying to, you know, see how to evolve the conference to continue uh, going with, you know, the attendees? Yeah, I, towards the end of it may have been a suggestion from someone last year, but I started thinking after the last conference, I, I think like I already used this term. I was trying to think of like what would provide more value. Um, and like, I think the last two years have been really good having like two conference days, but I was thinking if we could make it not only like more attractable uh, or more attractive to people attending, but also like the people sending them, and so like workshops seemed like a good fit because you bring four people in who are really skilled in what they want to present on and you get three hours in a small classroom kind of setting with them. I was like, that, that sounds good. And other conferences seem to do that successfully. So why not try it? And yeah. here we are. Um, are you selling those tickets? Or, Cause you're selling it a little bit differently where you can j- buy just the conference day, right? Right. So the idea is that the conference is still like the main thing. So uh, tickets are one ninety nine, and then it's an eighty dollar add on to do the workshops. Oh, cool. gotcha. Do you how are do you know what the sales difference is? Like, are most people coming for both days, or or we're, do you even know? We're pretty evenly split at this point. Um, I'd like to see some more people in the workshop days, but you know we have. We have a couple. We have well. I guess we only have a month now. It's June twenty sixth. Wow. Um, in the next week or so, I'm going to set it up to where people can sign up for like the specific workshops they want to go to, and I'm hoping that might encourage some people to pick up some workshop tickets. Yeah, that makes cool. sense. If you could have a specific place and time and theme in mind, I'm sure that'd make it a bit more interesting to sign up. You know. Yeah, make more like a something to act on so yeah uh daniel you are no longer a memphian well once once a memphian always a memphian but you are now in florida yeah Uh, what uh a where what prompted that move and b uh did you take your job with you what are you doing these days okay yeah um moving to florida was definitely sort of a long-term plan my wife Chandler has just now finished a dental school program, so she'll hopefully be starting practice as a dental surgeon in about a I don't know six weeks or so, and uh, that's been a pretty long journey for us. From the time she decided she was maybe done being an adjunct art professor and wanted to be a dentist instead, to finding a dental school, working through prerequisites, applications, etc. But uh, so. The actual dental program is four years long, and about halfway through it, we started trying to figure out 
what are we going to do when you graduate? And the the whole profession tends to lend itself to picking a city and going to find an established practice and joining a, another dentist who's been around longer as a assistant or associate or, or yeah, an associate, I guess they call it. So we started looking around and uh, we have family down here in the Panhandle area. We live now an hour from my parents and an hour and a half from her parents. And my sister-in-law lives across the highway, like a three minute drive with her two kids. So that made it a pretty soft landing for us. Uh, And yeah, there's a whole story about how we planned for that, like getting ready to sell our Memphis house, getting ready to buy a house in Florida. I was working at a shop in Germantown called Clear Function. It was pretty cool, but they mostly, I would have been the first and only fully remote employee at the time. And uh, I was just figured I should look for a job where I could be confident that no one would mind me being gone the whole time, right? So I started looking and I found a place called Gremlin, which uh, fit in nicely with my interest to move from application dev. I've been doing Rails and C Sharp before, and I wanted to do more back-end cloud infrastructure stuff. So Gremlin was has a mostly remote engineering time, you know, a team. And I moved over about a year ago, and then uh, that gave me plenty of time to work on fixing up our old house to sell it, and then selling it, moving to an apartment briefly, and then buying a new place and moving down here just a month ago. It's been a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, man, super awesome. I probably shouldn't have tried to write a book during that period. (laughs) It got really stressful in the last year, but uh, I'm pretty happy that I got through with it and very happy to be here now. I think it's cool how you knew you were planning on moving and you kind of shifted your career to kind of fit your life. Like that's really great. Yeah, man. I figured in our field, we're lucky enough to be able to seek that sort of opportunity out. It was, it took me longer than it would have, I would have expected to pull it off. Like, I guess there's a difference between finding a good job versus finding a specific job with a specific requirement that not all jobs have. I mean, there's still lots of cool jobs out there that would want me to be on site in California or even here in Florida. So looking specifically for something that does remote first was a pretty, it was an interesting sticking point, but we're lucky enough if you have, you know, several years of experience in Ruby or DevOps or something that you can probably find something if you look hard enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, go in remote. I mean, I was kind of remote at my last job, but it was still here in Memphis. Uh, but actually, like a fully distributed team is, it's a, it's a little bit of a shift in the way you work, but it's been 98% positive for me. So Yeah, man. I got to say, it's been better immediately here for me now that I'm in Florida, just because we have family nearby. That was one thing we always liked in Memphis. We had We had friends from work or Chandler's college experiences, but we just didn't have, you know, parents, grandparents, uncles, siblings, cousins within more than like an eight hour drive. So we were somewhat isolated there and trying to raise a kid without having any kind of backup like that. I mean, I very rarely would reach out to my, say, Memtech programmer buddies and ask them to babysit my kid or help me move some furniture, you know, whereas now I'm here, I'm doing all kinds of awesome home improvement projects and my seven-year-old dad comes over and gives me new tools and watches me do stuff with them. And it's it's really nice compared to the weird anxiety I felt about trying to do stuff like that alone just a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of support structure is 
makes a huge difference mm-hmm. because we looked yeah. at a job in California and it didn't work out. And like, I look back on it, like I'm always disappointed it didn't work out. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, my wife's mom's here. My, both my parents are here. Like we have a huge support system here. I don't know how we would have done it if we moved across the country. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I moved, well, I joined a startup for a year and uh, worked remotely, but I was one of two people out of like eight originally or something like that. And if the whole company is not remote, it's very hard because there's just so many little conversations that happen in person that you don't get looped in on. So then I ended up moving to New York City where I didn't know anybody and 100% ran into that where I was like, I can't like... I just have nobody to ask for help or anything just, you know, for random things like, Oh, I'll be out of town for a bit. Could you come watch my cat and feed him or whatever? It's like such a weird experience. And I originally wanted to move out to, you know, San Francisco and stuff after college. But that was the thing that I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't, you know, all of my family's in central Illinois and, and stuff. Like, I don't know anyone out there. And that seems pretty, you know, like a pretty big leap and um, it just takes time. Like you got to go find and build that network of people that you know and are close friends with to to help. But it takes a long time to do that in a different city. Yeah. So you got me wondering. Go ahead. Oh, now you've got me wondering if uh, the economics of Silicon Valley and the fact that so many people there don't have the family support structure because they immigrated there like you'd say if somebody decided they wanted to move to new york or something they're quite likely that they don't have a family there right so maybe that's why all of these uh gig economy things make so much sense in california because nobody has friends or family outside of work and most of them have only been there for a year or two so it's like we've got to reinvent all that stuff it usually means something awkward that costs money where it would be a lot cooler just to have a say a brother-in-law across the street who'd come help you move a heavy thing hmm. that's a great point interesting so you kind of hit on this a little bit earlier uh, during the movie you said it was a terrible time. Well, not a good time, optimal time to write a book. So let's, uh, let's introduce your book real quick. You built, you wrote a book called uh, build Chatbot interactions. Mm-hmm. And that is a Prague Prague book, which is cool because now I am friends with an author for pragmatic programmers. Sweet man. But I am, I'm just kind of curious you know, I'd like to hear about how you went from, you know, idea of writing a book to actually publishing. But before that, like what kind of got you into kind of chatbots initially? That's a great question. Um, I have always been interested in chat and I guess online communities, like for as long as I can remember. I spent way too much time in high school. I was at a boarding school. We had a uh, we had a T1 in our dorm. So I had, that was my first exposure to high speed, always on internet. So I'm sitting around on AOL instant messenger, sending messages to people in my dorm down the hall, but also they were segregated into boys and girls dorms, or I guess separated is a better word. So we'd, we'd be confined to our rooms after like eight o'clock, but I could still text across the street to the girls dorm with instant messenger. And just doing that all the time got me into being a, a pretty fast typist. And then over the next decade, I started doing IRC all the time, mostly about uh, 
computer games I was into, like Counter-Strike Buddies or whatever. And then, geez, fast forward about another 10 years, and then I'm in Memphis uh, working programming jobs, and I start joining local IRC channels to talk with other local programmers about what we're into. And sometime around then, I think I noticed the uh, Hubot uh, JavaScript chatbot framework put out by GitHub. I think that came out around 2014, and I created, I installed one around 2016 to run on a local chat room for the Memphis Technology Group, and it was super fun. There's just some magic in Hubot that uh, makes it very, very easy to get started. It's kind of one of those tools that's maybe easier to get started than it is to really push a long way to make something very fancy and robust with. Like, I don't know, say Sinatra versus Rails, we're going to use them for different purposes. And yeah, so I got really into Hubot. But what excited me the most was, uh, I don't remember what I was thinking at the time, but I put the thing up on Heroku so I could quickly deploy it and redeploy it all I wanted. And I put the repo out on a public GitHub repo and I hooked up a continuous uh, build and deployment using a tool called Worker because I think we were using that in my day job at Coroutine doing uh, Rails work, right? So pushing that out and showing people like, hey, click here and you can type in a one-line change to make the chatbot do something cool. And then if uh, someone merges the PR and it doesn't break the bill, then it will show up in the chat room five minutes later. That like immediately created a really interesting virtuous cycle of you know positive feedback and people getting into it. And I just really love that. That chatbot eventually kind of went off the rails. It turns out when you have a single chat room with 50 people watching and people start programming the chatbot to do more and more stuff, it turns into like a sorcerer's apprentice situation. But uh, it was really fun. Like I've never had another project that, and this wasn't even my project. Like I just set up a copy of somebody else's chatbot, right? But then you build all of your own customization on top of it. It's like you might build a Rails site, but you didn't build Rails per se. It was a situation like that. You should uh, you should tell the name of the bot. Oh yeah, that bot was Elvis. I was just looking back on uh, the early commit history of the Elvis bot on the Memtech GitHub repo, and I was fascinated to see that I set up continuous integration on day one, which I'd forgotten about. I got the first uh, commit from somebody who wasn't me within a few hours, and then a- another person. By the end of the day, we had three contributors, including me, and then. Uh, on day two, there's a commit from uh, Josh Lewis, who uh, is a friend of mine and yours, I guess, from Memphis Ruby. And he committed to say the bot's name is now Elvis instead of Hubot. And uh, it was that way for years to come. Man, all this IRC stuff was like where I started going down the rabbit hole too of, you know, fiddling with chat bots and stuff because I had you know, friends that would set up things for logging and stuff. And um, it was just so much fun to have those bots and just fiddle with them. And we would set up one to like, um, just like copy. If you wanted to paste in code, you could paste it in privately and then it would show up as a link or, you know, it would unfurl links in IRC. Kind of all the features that you're like used to in Slack these days were manually built by people making IRC bots and stuff. That was so much fun. And I I remember I originally was like, I need to learn networking. 
And so I decided to try to build an IRC bot. And that was where I really like started to, I, I started to like telnet into an IRC server, like Freenode, I think. And then just see if I could build, you know, a script to do it just with pure, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was just doing Python at the time, but that was like such a good way to learn, you know, programming in a way that was really, really fun and like super interactive too. Yeah. It's funny to hear you say that. That reminds me, I had several failed attempts to build chatbots from scratch in the decade before. Like I had a I had one that went nowhere with Node back in 09 when Node was new and then another one a few years later in Python, but I didn't really understand the concept of event-driven programming or like a an, a loop or just a, mm-hmm. yeah, a loop that would listen and catch events and respond to them. It wasn't really until a few years later when I had more programming experience under my belt, but also I think Hubot was dialed in at just the right level to where I was building very simple interactions on top of somebody else's uh, chat framework that was already doing all the heavy lifting then it was just like it's i mean it's like a routing thing you get this route this string comes in you check and see if it has any keywords you recognize and you shuffle them off to a single method that does something and spits out a return string like that was that level of interaction was what really got me excited and that's actually where the book goes mostly like single one-offs like someone says hey chatbot do this specific thing for me and then there's a chapter on writing the 50, 100 lines of Ruby to take to make that thing happen. This sounds like exactly the book that I would have like died to read back then because yeah, I tried to do it myself. And you know, the first thing I did was like, Oh, I, you know, built some socket connection and it worked. But then a few seconds later, when it sends a ping over and I never respond, <laughs> then I get disconnected. And I was like, Oh right. crap. Like this is, this is something I, cause I was just building little desktop, you know, mm-hmm. programs in Python before. And I was like, Oh, this is totally different. And I'm going to have to do a lot more understanding to like, understand how to build something that is event driven like that. And that was also yeah. where I kind of learned metaprogramming too, but I didn't know that's what it was called. Cause I was like, you know what? Every one of these messages comes over with like, you know, a command at the beginning. I don't want to build a huge if statement to call the same method with the same name. I wish I could just convert that. Um, And I had figured out, you know, something for that, but it wasn't until I got into Ruby and rails and, and started learning about like all the meta programming that they do that, I realized like, oh, I kind of discovered this on accident back in my IRC days because yeah. that was like what I was trying to accomplish. And it turns out that's a great solution for those kinds of problems. So mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like chatbots are such an awesome way to like, you know, get introduced to so many of these different topics. Cause it's very similar to how, you know, JavaScript in your browser works. It's all some interaction happened, they let you know about it and you go process it and do what you need to. So Yeah, exactly. You write like a single handler for a single type of input and it usually starts out as a very small program that doesn't have to think or know too much about the world outside of that single interaction. It turns out to be a fairly easy thing for a programmer of any level of experience to wrap their head around. One of my proudest moments with that Elvis bot was uh realizing after the fact that somebody had added another, we had a, one of the scripts would spit out dumb jokes, like it, sort of a call and response thing. Like you'd 
say, I don't know, you'd say hi or you'd say not knock and say who's there, for instance. And somebody add, started adding jokes to it with the GitHub web UI. And I found out later that he, I don't think he'd used Git or uh, JavaScript or hardly anything related to that particular bot before. It was just written in a fairly plain English DSL and he just started copying and pasting in new stuff and it worked. And the fact that he was able to make a commit that was merged as a PR and passed the build and got shipped without having to learn all that stuff was just super duper gratifying. That is super cool. So a question uh, I have would be, so like I, being a part of the Mimtech Slack, I am familiar with the Elvis bot and some of the things it might do. What are some good examples uh, you could give for chat bots and maybe like a professional setting? Sure. Um, so that's kind of funny. You should frame it that way. Uh, I've been doing chatbots for years and I can't recall really doing much that was really legitimately useful for work with them until recently. Like I cool. have had a long habit of setting up fun chatbots at work. It's just sort of a bonding experience. But uh, let's see, back at the beginning of this calendar year, actually, um, I shipped a chatbot built with the Lita framework in Ruby, which is the one that my book focuses on. And uh, we were doing a lot of stuff by hand with bash scripts or clicking through different screens on Bitbucket or whatever to do release management tasks, like say cutting a new release to make a new PR that people would check out and approve or reject and then merging and stuff like that. So I realized that I was just doing these one-off API calls to circle CI into Bitbucket all the time. And that was like the whole point of what I did with Lita all the time with my book. And so I just sat down and wrote a Lita bot like in an afternoon that would take these basic interactions. Like one was just a bunch of Bitbucket event handlers and another one was a bunch of uh, circle CI job triggers. So instead of having to run a shell script to trigger the deploy this job for a specific application. We could just say the bot, tell the bot, uh, hey bot, go deploy application XYZ to production and it'll do it. So that's that's the one that we use a lot right now. That's cool. There are plenty of others. Like you can have, you can build more customized integrations or alerting or notification type stuff. Like if you, uh, like if you're used to getting alerts in your Slack channel from, I don't know, you say production's down or you're having latency issues, that sort of thing. You can build that into your bot. Like you could have your bot running cron jobs, for instance, on a schedule and they'd take the results and ship them off to different places. I mean, pretty much anything you can do or you do with a single shell script at work, you could just as soon do inside a chat bot and then having that be online and in a a messaging bus where you already know that the rest of your team is available. It's kind of cool. Oh yeah. Just another thing I remembered is uh, one of the other interactions I built into the to a related bot was uh, when a job, when a build runs on circle CI, there's a way to add a webhook to send a JSON payload of the results of that build to wherever. And I set up a webhook to send it to uh, a Python bot that parses it to see if the job succeeded or not. And if it's a failed build, then it goes through a few checks to see like, is it on master or is it something we really care about? And if we think the failure is noteworthy, then it'll just post directly in Slack, like, Hey, this thing failed. And it will 
send an app message to whoever was on call. So if we got the nightly scheduled builds to prepare whatever we're supposed to be deploying this morning, it'll see that the 1 a.m. job to prepare the build failed for whatever reason and app message the relevant person who's on call to go check it out. So it's it's fun. I mean, yeah, anything that you program anywhere, you can plug into a small chatbot script. It's really all about creativity and just seeing the possibilities. That's pretty amazing. One thing you hit on before you started that was you said that you kind of do it just you build these is like ways just for the team to kind of get together. I think that's kind of cool because we were talking earlier about being like remote and things like that. Yeah, uh, I, I had a call with a new uh, coworker today and he was just like trying to get to know people. And I was like, when you said that, I was like, yeah, that is kind of a fun way just to get everybody like all involved. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back when I worked at my last job, one of the things we did with the chatbot, I think it was Hubot at the time, we uh, integrated a basically a soundboard, and then we ran a, a sound or an audio playback daemon on a local machine. So if you tell the chatbot like, "Hey, play the annoying noise," the chatbot will send a what do you call it a WebSocket event to any connected listeners and they'll hear it and say, Oh, someone wants to play the annoying noise. And then they'll turn around and fire off uh, a message across the local network to the office Sonos, which is like a, a network speaker. So then the Sonos would be like, Oh, someone wants me to play this annoying MP3 and then it plays. So we'd set up soundboards so you could play like, I don't know, Chewbacca making a funny groaning noise or like a, a cash register ching when uh, we made a, a sale, all kinds of stuff like that. We had it, counting down to give us like a five minute warning when it was time for stand up, which was always fun. But that was, that was one of the weirdest hacks we put together. And there were so many moving parts that I wound up scrapping that chapter from the book. Turns out that, uh, coding against Sonos or uh, Sphero were both a little too brittle for me to feel good about motivating other people to do like it's possible, but it's also going to be a pain trying to keep it up and running. So I didn't want to send anybody down a frustrating path like that. <laughs> yeah. I, you remember those days like uh campfire had a couple commands or whatever that would play different audio noises. And it would just, I think it just came over as a command and the, the client knew mm-hmm. to play that um, whenever it came over that those were always really funny. I remember that that happening in the office, like, you know, someone tells a bad joke and then all of a sudden everybody's computers play this noise or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, we went, we went that far with the Sonos integration. Like if somebody was working from home, they'd have to run a copy of the daemon on their machine, but it would connect to the chatbot. And so this presumes they have a Sonos too, but they can hear the same annoying noise at remote offices or home offices. Yeah. It was really fun. That is great. I, I remember th- there was like a, a Hubot extension or something that, that would play like you could tell it to play kind of shared music. Like if it was connected to the office's speakers or whatever, you can tell it to queue up songs or whatever. Um, I don't remember what the, you know, if it, it would probably be something you could do pretty easily with, say, Spotify these days or something, but. Um, yeah, I, the, the whole chatbot thing is really awesome because, you know, like on the web, you have to go build your interface and everything, but with chat, your interface is so simple and Mm -hmm. you don't have to build that either. So you can just simply build the cool functions and just, 
you know, build the cool features without having to worry about any of that stuff. And that's kind of, I think the beauty of it, like it's so much fun to do it because you don't have to worry about all those nuances. You just like mm-hmm. parse commands and do the work. That's it. Sure. Yeah. I feel like if you're any kind of web programmer, you're going to be used to taking strings in and doing work and sending strings out. And that's exactly what chatbots do, right? If you've ever written a Rails app or a Django app or done something with Node, that's unlikely to be foreign to you. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't have to deal with SSL and headers and cookies Mm -hmm. and any of that stuff. You're like, you know, no authentication. Your stuff just works. That's it. It's kind of already taken care of by the platform. It's like the dream job. (laughs) So, uh, Daniel, I think we want to, I I know I'm going to read through the book. I think we'd like to have you back on to actually maybe go a little more in depth into the book. Um, But in the meantime, where can people buy your book? That's a good question. So uh, it is for sale on the Pragmatic Bookshelf. Uh, Okay, I'm digging it out now. I hope you guys have show notes. It's uh, the web publisher's website is pragpog.com. And I'm going to paste a link right now and then read it out for you. It's uh, pragpog.com slash book slash dp chat that's my initials daniel pritchett chat slash bill dash chatbot dash interactions i had a short bitly link at some point this one's kind of a mouthful maybe i should buy a ten dollar domain so i can just say you know <laughs> you should build a net slash book oh wait that does exist you should have a url shortener bot <laughs> <laughs> I have, awesome yeah I could really use one of those at work. Okay, so yeah, dpritchett.net slash book does have a link. And maybe I should have remembered that. It's been months since I set that up. But hopefully people can find it. It's, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes too. So. Cool. Yeah, you can get a paper copy or the ebook. And oh, one thing I should point out, uh, Avdi Grimm and I got together a few months ago and recorded a 90-minute video of he and I talking through using Lita to the Ruby chatbot framework to spin up a new bot and connect to a Slack channel and uh, build out a simple integration. And uh, I think he's selling that for about $15 on uh, Gumroad right now. I'll get you a link to that too. But if uh, video is more your speed than a 200-page book, then you should definitely check it out. Awesome. Very cool. I'll have to check that out too. Cool. And then finally, where can people find you online? Oh, man. So I have a, a blog that doesn't get a ton of love at dputsit.net. Um, the most frequently updated spot is probably Twitter. I'm at dputsit there. I tend to be talking about whatever's on my mind about work, and I have to try really hard to keep my uh, attention out of the stuff that derails me and gets me too worked up. Like It's really easy for me to get anxious about politics or someone being wrong about something rather than I always regret it. So my Twitter feed turns out to be pretty tame, but talking to me in person is kind of the opposite of that. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It was good to catch up with you and uh, learn some more about what you're up to. So we'll, uh, we'll give this book a read and then we'll do a, a more thorough dive here in the next few weeks. Well, thanks a lot, fellas. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for joining us. All right, Chris, I will 
put a bow on this episode. We will we will ship it and then we will record another one tomorrow. Cool. Sounds good. See ya. See ya.